I'm Megan Bob, and I'm here to uncover the mysteries of why I like these blue alien books. Helping me are Josh. Hello. Marissa. I meant to think of something funny, but I didn't. Hi. (laughs) And David. This is my voice. Oh, beautiful. (laughs) Welcome to this very special episode of The Next Wrestling Fan in the Furs. Welcome. Thank you for joining me on this very horny and spurry adventure. So I want to ask each of you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you got into romance novels and what, if anything, keeps you coming back. What is it that keeps you coming back? As is presently the case, uh, my name is Josh Vasky Huff. The thing that um, got me into romance novels is she's like, started listening to this podcast and one of the hosts won a dumb contest uh and so they were going to be (laughs) reading a romance novel on the show and it just sort of cascaded from there this is now my third romance novel i didn't actually get in on the first one um for the podcast i did jump Mm. in with the governess game the thing that keeps bringing me back to romance novels is you continuing to do well in the cheap pop quiz. And so I appreciate you <laughs> for doing that because Aww. this is a delight. Thank you. Here, here. <laughs> Marissa, go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit and tell us what got you into it and why you keep clicking by because I feel you. I do. Oh, I know you do. And I mean, you're, you're part of this journey for me, Megan Bob. I'm Marissa. I write stuff and I procrastinate writing stuff. So I first got into romance novels actually in high school because I took this class called Great Books. And it's a class where all you did was you came to the class and you picked a book off the shelf and you (gasps) read the entire time. What? It was amazing. Thank you, Mrs. Beam. And thank you, East Lincoln High School. This is the only time I will ever thank you for anything, but I'm glad it got on the curriculum. Um, But anyway, I was reading all the shit you're supposed to read, right? Like I was going hard and hitting the classics. My teacher finally, at some point, she was like, you know, you're reading a lot of really dense stuff. Why don't you just take a break and try this? And she hands me, it wasn't quite, it wasn't a bodice ripping novel, but it was some smut. Yeah! I learned. (laughs) It was some real smut. And as an extremely Southern Baptist young person, I was like, people do this? Also, I started taking notes, learned a lot, um, and... (laughs) At the end of it, I was so satisfied. Not in the sense of, well, okay, (laughs) poor choice of word. And I was like, this was not a good book, but I'm so glad I read it. And what I think she was trying to tell me was, you got to have some balance in your reading, some variety. And these horny romance novels fulfill that certain aspect of... I mean, junk food, I guess, is one way to look at it, though that's not fair because they're doing a lot of really subversive and important work. But um, depending on what type of romance novel you're mm-hmm. reading, it definitely fulfills a different sort of 
intellectual and um, bodily satisfaction mm. that other books don't. Mm. So I sort of fell off the romance wagon, as one does, because I had to get back to my very important tomes of literature, all caps, uh, bookshelf, <laughs> etc. But then later, as I became friends with Megan Bob, she's like, have you ever read Regency romance novels? And I was like, you know, I haven't, but I will. Mm. And as the kindest of human beings, Megan Bob uh, shared a lot of her work with me and then got me incredibly hooked. Well, I want to transition to talking to David about this because David came up with a term for what it is that romance novels provide. There is an uplifting sense I get from reading romance novels that I've not been able to yeah. find anywhere else. Uh, there's a level of positivity and uh, and hopefulness. Mm. There are emotions, genuine emotions that I feel while reading romance novels that I really have not gotten from any other type of literature. Mm. I've been a voracious reader my entire life from childhood on up, and that has kind of translated to a full-on addiction towards yeah. romance novels. But I don't feel like it's bad. I, I feel like I do come away with them with a, a better sense of empathy towards people that whose lives have maybe been very different from my own. So I think of them as Flintstone vitamins of the soul. Yes, they're delicious, but I also oh. think they're good for me. <laughs> oh, yes. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, that's so good. Yeah, that's, that's really so magnificent. Everybody eat your soul vitamins. They're good for you. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> I know. Mm -hmm. Oh. <laughs> and I want to, dear listeners, take you on this journey through this book. This is the Blue Dick Brigade breakdown because we're all going to have our hands on it. It's all, it's, it's happening. This is Liz's book. And I think there are some things that we need to say about Liz at the outset. Josh, I know you have some Liz and Rahush things that you wanted to say. Just right out of the gate. Out the gate, it's probably worth knowing going in that Liz sucks. <laughs> Liz sucks so bad, she's just the worst. A thing to know about Rahash is that he also sucks. The thing that I keep coming back to is the song Life in the Fast Lane. <laughs> There's a line in that song that is, they had one thing in common, they were good in bed. <laughs> that is the sum totality of why <sighs> this book works. Yeah, it does. They have one thing in common, they were good in bed. And also, the bestest boy that we're going to get to later, the real Sami Zayn of the series. Yeah, God, mm. he is. So Liz is breaking in the new girls. And then Rahush, one line from him that we get is, because he's already resonated to Liz. He says, my Kui is an idiot. And so we're like, okay, that's that tells us who <laughs> Rahush is. What happens in at the beginning of this book is we get a little bit of um, what already happened the, at the end of the last one. It's just from Liz's perspective. Liz gets the Kui against her will because Rahush forces it on her. She passes out. Then Rahush kidnaps Liz and he bathes this unconscious woman. Look, we're there's problems. I'm not saying there's not problems. Mm -hmm. It's gross. I mean, I, I don't care that it's gross because it was, you know what? It's nice whenever you don't have to wash your own hair. So there. We also <laughs> find out, and this is fucking crucial. I am underlining this 50 times. Rahush is a virgin. That is the trope candy. Male virgins, you don't get them that much. Ah, I know! Mm -hmm. They are sacred and must be so protected rare. at all fucking costs, even if they are trash goblins. It's like a shiny Pokemon. <laughs> oh, so much. Liz wakes up. 
in this cave tied up and she resonates for Rahash. Liz is pissed because obviously who wants to resonate for this weirdo who like took you to a cave and tied you up except for sort of us. But, you know. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Put a pin in the fact that Liz is pissed. And then keep coming to that pin whenever she reacts to something. You know, <laughs> you're not wrong. You know, variations on a repeating theme. Andrew Lloyd Webber, famous for that. Uh, this is art. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You should do the book jackets for her. Like, uh. Uh, repetitions on a motif, dot, dot, dot. This is art, dash, David Waters. Oh, she, yes, absolutely. She should bank on this. The theme that plays in Star Wars when Luke Skywalker like looks out over the setting Twin Sons of Tatooine <laughs> that shows up over and over again throughout the Star Wars series. For me, that's got to be Spur in the Front. <laughs> oh, God. It so is. It so is. Mm -hmm. We'll come back to Spur in the Butt, y'all. All right. So Liz uh. doesn't know that Rahush got the language zap. So she speaks English around him all the time. And does a lot of out loud narration, which is very helpful as a, a book concept. On top of that, she doesn't know that he knows English. And so he's just never talking to her. And then one of the angry things that happens while they're, while they're very angry. <laughs> is the angry masturbation scene. And so this is the one of the most important scenes in all of literature. I just want to put that out there. So what happens is they're both very horny because resonance makes you crazy horny. So Rahosh leaves the cave and then Liz is like, oh shit, I got to rub one out. This is the worst. And then he walks in and is like, oh, you well, well, fuck you. I'm going to wank then, you bastard. <laughs> it is not even that she is rubbing one out and he walks in. He walks in at the exact moment when she moans his name. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Because that's the thing about Resonance. It's not just horny general. It's horny specifically for him. Mm -hmm. And she hates that. Oh, it's so good. One, this scene is very hot. Two, we need to talk about the problematic nature of Kui and Resonance and all those things. And I think now is a fruitful time to do it as we also talk about how fucking tremendous and weird this moment is. This moment and the aspect of the Kui specifically hits a couple of my favorite tropes, mm -hmm. um, which is the not bad boy, but misunderstood boy mm. who's been hurt a lot in the past and just needs some love because I am the most basic yeah. <laughs> of uh, assholes. Me too. <laughs> but more importantly than that, it is my favorite trope of all time, which is they hate each other, but there's only one bed. Yes. That is one of my favorite tropes. <laughs> and this is a variation on it where they hate each other, but their cooey is demanding this. And uh, that's my heroine, man. Yeah. And they hate each other the right amount, which is to say a lot. Yeah, but based on very superficially <laughs> and easily overcome problems. Yeah, because they're the same person, mm. basically. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, my God. All right, Josh, what are some of your thoughts about this? Okay, so I think, like, even just to back up and take an even longer view, we've made a lot of jokes about this being a trash series and this work being bad, but we enjoy it anyways. And I, I fundamentally disagree with that as a premise. I don't think that mm. there is such a thing necessarily as bad art. There's art that you don't connect with. There's art that is making a statement that you disagree with. The function of art is the eliciting of an emotional response. I personally mm -hmm. believe that 
eroticism, horniness, the thing that is at the center of romance novels necessarily. Yeah. A real boner. But like, that's an emotional response. Yeah. Let me plant the flag on porn is art. Yes. It's a different kind of art. It's an art that is functioning in mm -hmm. a way that is not socially valued. I want to say that I personally do consider these books art. My problem with them as far as like what makes them trash is not that they are not art. It's that some of the ideas that they espouse about consent, about what relationships should look like and about what priorities should look like are very problematic, sometimes regressive, not necessarily things that I would put in somebody's hands and say, this is my vision for the world. For me, that is the trashy aspect of them. The trashiness is the politics and not the... Yeah, and also I admit that the things that I find horny about them is often the trashiness. And so for mm. me that they're tied up, mm. but mm -hmm. I do think there are. And I think Marissa and I can speak to the extent to which we think that these books are art in a profound <laughs> fucking way. I think now is the time. Garden plots with Skeletor wouldn't exist if Ruby Dixon hadn't written these books. Oh, yes. Oh. <laughs> We were so struck by her utter unwillingness to compromise about her vision for this world and these characters and mm. the way that she mm. writes her art that we were like, we could do anything. Anything is possible. And it doesn't matter because yeah. if you love what you're making, it has a life of its own that is deeper and more meaningful than if you try to kind of make art that makes everybody happy. Ruby Dixon could give a shit if anybody else gets off on these books. Like, she would like it if you did, but these are for yeah. her. And that inspired Garden Plots with Skeletor in a very weird way. God, I'm so happy. It did, because... <laughs> That's amazing. At the very beginning, you know, we were talking about, well, who's the audience going to be for this? Is there even an audience for a cartoon character from the 80s having a gardening podcast in the podcast world? And then at some point... And, after reading these books, we were like, oh, yeah, fuck it. Uh, <laughs> we, we threw up our middle fingers and said, fuck you. We do what we want. We want this to exist. And it's going to happen right now. And uh, so this helped inspire that aspect of I'm it. I'm so glad you did. <laughs> and I think that's what Ruby Dixon brings to her art that's so pure. Ruby Dixon loves it. Yeah. David, tell me about your sort of feelings about the problematic consent stuff, the, the quee stuff, and about your sort of feelings about it as art. I think this is the book that needed to exist. I can appreciate why Miles didn't care for book one. Book one yeah. might be my least favorite of the Ice Planet Barbarian series. I think Ruby Dixon was kind of introducing these concepts. She had this idea for a world that she wanted to exist, but maybe wasn't totally done in the oven yet. But... She has introduced this parasitic species, this Kui, which is going to allow her to do some crazy stuff in the future. Yeah. It's going to allow her to get people in relationships that maybe wouldn't otherwise have a reason to get together, but the compulsion aspect mm. needs to be addressed. And I think it was something that I recognized in book one and was like, okay, there is potential for this to get bad yeah. and Right away, book two, here we go. We're hitting this head on. We're not dodging this issue of how much consent can either get glossed over in the lightest terms or just flat out ignored. And we're going to find out what happens in 
what could be the worst case scenario? A man taking a woman against her will until she makes his babies. And you know what? After that, if anything, it left me afterwards with sort of this sense of safety with the series. Like, well, Mm. you know, it's not going to get worse (laughs) than that. (laughs) And you know, 18 books later... It has Oh, man. You know, you make a fair point about the series and the, why this book is the second book and not like a later on book. I hadn't realized the extent to which this book needs to exist in order for you to feel safer in the world. And I do want to just highlight, guys, guys, they furiously wank at each other. That's the scene. <laughs> They're so angry. Oh. <laughs> <sighs> <laughs> they're so pissed and they're just rage masturbating at each in other. In this tiny cave. <laughs> and it, for some reason, that makes me love this book. David, I think you had something really important to say that is relevant to this and all romance novels. Yes, this particular blue space orc insists while he's masturbating <laughs> at Liz that he has the biggest dick in his tribe. So, I've read 18 of these books, and as far as I can tell, every member of the Sakui species dick is the biggest. (laughs) This is not an issue that is unique to Ipe's Planet Barbarians. One thing I enjoy about romance novels is the body diversity that women are allowed. Mm -hmm. Women can be large, they can be small, they can be pretty, they can be... uh, you know, plain not, is the word they use. N- yes, plain. Not movie star level hottedness. This same level of diversity does not extend to the men. No matter how large the woman is, the man is always strong enough to lift and carry her. Oh, uh, no matter how tall the woman is, she will always have to look up at the man. The man will never have an ounce of body fat. Even if he's not super strong, he will still be toned. Every dick is large enough to be at least a little scary. Yeah, boy, are they. The Sakui scare the (laughs) shit out of me. So my question, ladies, is this what it feels like to be a woman consuming literally any other form of popular entertainment? Is this just me running headfirst into the female gaze? Uh, kinda, yeah. I don't know the extent to which you're sort of like deadened to it, Marissa, but to me, it's just weird whenever I see somebody with a different body type who's a woman and stuff now that's mainstream. So I'm like, what are you doing? How did you get in here? What happened? <laughs> like, how did the system not oppress you out of existence? That's weird. I mostly consume wrestling at this point, And like, there is one plus size female wrestler who I have seen a lot of, and that's Piper Niven. And like, mm. I know. Yeah, right. That's the sound of me. Yeah. She's fucking hot. The thing about Piper Niven, though, is that it honestly makes me nervous watching her wrestle because she's fat that I'm worried at any moment it's going to be about her being fat. And like that makes me (sighs) fucking anxious because like that's what it is to be a woman in the world. So anyway, that's that's my stance on this. Much like living in white supremacy, living in the concept of like the male gaze and that sort of objectifying and like that double consciousness Mm -hmm. that you have to have. I no longer know what thoughts I'm thinking and what thoughts are being thought for me sometimes, <sighs> you know? Yeah. And in, especially in relationship with romance novels. I would like to say that there are more body types for men than uh, represented, I think, in romance novels. 
then have up until the very recent past been represented for women in basically all other forms of media. That's true. Uh, but when it comes to the dick thing, that's that's a thing. Because yeah. like I have never read one single romance novel where they were like, well, it's kind of small. <laughs> yeah, or just going like, that's average. It's fine. It's not going to cause any internal damage. Is this also maybe a internalization of what toxic masculinity respects oh, about shit. manhood, which is, you know, the dick comparison contest. Mm. So is this something that has been internalized oh, and we're just trying to represent that back? I feel like I'm just Medusa being shown a mirror here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's kind of how I feel too. And my mom's not going to listen to this. So I'm just going to go ahead and say, when you get a giant dick, it's not, I don't think it's as cool as no. toxic masculinity would want us to think it is, guys. It's interesting in the way that like a big horse is interesting. Like you're just sort of right. going like, no, it's big. It's real big. It's different. It's real big. It's but like... How am I going to get on it? Yeah. I don't know. I, uh, do I have a saddle for that thing? Like, <laughs> how, where are we going to put it? Like, <laughs> yeah, the big dick thing is kind of ridiculous. So what happens after these angry winks? Liz has a really great line, which is, I'm not going to clean that up for you, pointing <laughs> to the puddle of semen that is now oh. on the floor. Because they just angrily masturbated at each other, which is very, <laughs> just very... It does get cleaned up. I guess Rahosh cleans it up. They go to sleep. Liz wakes up extra early and sneaks out. And Rahosh pretends to be asleep and then follows her. And so Liz goes down to the river with, you know, those weird face eater fish, the bamboo fish that Miles talked about. She doesn't know about them because she's never really been on the planet so far. She's like, oh, I'll get that. I can make a bow out of it because Liz wants to go bow hunting. And, you know, like you do. And then because it's attached to the fucking fish, it nearly chomps her face off. Rahosh rescues her. I mean... Guys, somebody just got rescued, so now you have to fuck. Them's the rules. That is. Mm -hmm. They're super turned on. They're so pissed at each other. I We come back to the fact that Liz is pissed all the time. <laughs> back to that pin. Now we get the most dramatic eating out in the snow ever. Because there's a lot of going down in these books. That's that's a big theme of these. So much oral. I had so forgotten. Much. <laughs> it's great. Liz keeps saying, don't do this, while also, like, shoving Rahush into place. <laughs> and Rahush says, mine, afterwards. And Liz is like, you speak English, you motherfucker. And is real pissed. As I was reflecting on this specifically, like, thinking a lot about the Kui as an altered state, as a sort of drug, or when you're drinking alcohol, like, that does, in some important ways, nullify consent broadly. But that's not stopping people from going out and drinking and hooking up. Because of the presence of this, there's the subjective experience of wanting something and of going for it and having something that sort of forcibly removes mm -hmm. those social barriers. Like that's kind of the function of the qui is removing the socialization of somebody and pushing them directly towards sex. I don't like that as a thing in real life. I don't want that to be around. Don't touch that. It's hot. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's so fucking hot. <laughs> oh, God, you're so right. That's the best way to put it. I don't want it to exist, but God, it's hot. So, okay. So Resonance is calling them for them to bone down. And Liz is pissed. I, again, I'm just going to say Liz is pissed that the Chloe decided who she wants to be with. And she wanted a choice, like a person. 
And then they start having an actual conversation. We're very proud of these dumb children. And Liz wants to go hunting. And Rohesh is like, fucking fine. I'll take you hunting if you'll snuggle with me. So that's sketchy. <laughs> but but they both get super turned on because it's such horny snuggles. Mm-hmm. And so, and Rahush is like, but I really want to go down on you again. And Liz is like, okay. And (laughs) I mean, there's, why would you say no to that? That's like free candies. And we just like, here have these full size Snickers. You're like, the fuck yeah, I have these full size Snickers. Give me the fucking box. (laughs) And then, but Liz is like, okay, in exchange though, I want to touch that monster dick. And. So there's these virginal hand jobs and we're all messing about and it's it's it, Rahosh isn't a virgin anymore and it's so cute <laughs> for this series that is definitely problematic. It's so cute. Revisiting it, to me, I think this is probably the hottest scene. I think me. there's something mm. really hot about it, for sure. The moment where she is basically like, I've got the quote. So in, in the narration, it's, it's about making some heavy petting fun for him too, so he can see that he's sexy and desirable and somebody wants him after all. Is so good. And then, quite possibly one of the best things to ever hear ever, especially if you have anatomy that has a, a pretty hostile refractory period oh, if you yeah. want to continue on. Um, I like that. Hostile. <laughs> I have a note in the same section, and I'm just going to read verbatim. I would just like to take this opportunity to remind any aspiring or practicing romance authors out there who may not have been around a penis in a while that refractory periods exist, and that some peoples are longer than others. And that is all. Yeah, definitely. The Sakui is like, it's crazy that they're just like, oh, I'm ready to go again. I do like, David, that you're bringing up something that is also a common trope theme in romance novels which is the complete lack of refractory period yeah and that everyone can bone forever without like any Uh. biological needs for you know chafing or like hydration or (laughs) we're just toweling the fuck off (laughs) all right yeah the actual direct quote that i pulled probably one of the hottest things that that you can hear if, again, you have a penis, but, like, don't want that to just kind of be the end. What she says to him, because he is a virgin and is not going to last long, her way of saying, hey, it's okay, I'm going to make you feel sexy, is by saying, I'm going to make you come, and then I'm going to take my time with you. And it's the sweetest and hottest goddamn thing. I love Ruby Dixon. She gets what people want in such a deep way. We all just want to be loved by somebody and, like, given a fur. And also a cocksper up the butt, you know. Oh well, I mean, goes without <laughs> saying. It's gonna get fucking serious now because they're gonna go hunting, and it's all fun, and it's a date, and then there's Metlax, and you guys remember Metlax, which are those little weird Yeti cats, and there's a bunch, and Rahush tries to save her. Well, he does sort of save her, but he goes over a cliff in the process. It's very dramatic. And Liz, like, kills a couple with her bow because she only has four arrows. They were realistic about that. I think the fact that there's a victory in combat and then Liz takes out the remaining sort of malingerers, I suppose you could say, brings up the fact that Liz is kind of hyper-competent because now Liz has to take care of Rahush and get him back to the cave. And I believe Marissa has some strong feelings about pioneer woman liz 
first of all, and I know we'll talk about this, I do think it's very clever to have that reverse of power dynamics uh, mm-hmm. in the book. I think that was a smart move by Ruby mm. Dixon. But, dude, she's 22, and yes, she loves bow hunting. But being good at bow hunting is significantly different than being good at making a bow and arrows and then firing those and then killing things with them in a new planet. I mean, look, I am a, as I've said, I am a pretty top-notch Pop-Tart toaster. Like, I know how to keep an eye out as it's just getting that caramelization and then pop it up right before it burns. I am good at that. However, if I was on Gilligan's fucking island, I would not be capable of making a toaster. I know what they do. I don't know how to make them happen. And I know it's a much more basic tool, but like, I've tried to make bows as a child because I was a child. And I found out pretty quick that I'm crap at that. And like to have a material that you've never used that you're not even sure is what would be considered a material on this planet. And then all of a sudden be fucking Katniss. Like how I just, I call shenanigans. And that is my statement on that. Josh, earlier you mentioned that Liz sucks. Counterpoint, (laughs) this whole series of chapters. (laughs) She killed Matlax, Josh. How? How can you be against this powerful, strong... Listen, listen, listen. She rolled for her stats. The DM wasn't there and was just like, yeah, sure. I'm sure that you did, in fact, roll four 18s and one 11. (laughs) So Liz, with all of her many strong, strong pioneer attributes, <laughs> rescues him, drags his ass back to the cave by making a travois, <laughs> which is very cool. And um, so Liz is the one taking care of Rahosh and keeping him alive while his queen heals his injuries. And Rahosh comes to after being out for like 10 days. And Liz has done a stellar job. She now has like 50 bows or whatever. She's like shenanigans. Been, I know. She's been smoking meat. She's got, like, leggings, but now comes the boning. Liz is turned on, and Rahush gets super turned on, and they have sex for the first time, and they're both like, fuck, that was real good. That was great. (laughs) And then they actually talk about sex. And then there's a great moment that I I want to say where Liz asked for foreplay and because Rahush didn't touch a single tit this entire time because at no point was that explained as a thing that you should do. It's kind of there's an element of like, did I foreplay correctly? And at one point earlier in the books, Liz says to him, nope. And Rahush is like, well, that's obviously this is a sexual term. So like Liz asked for foreplay and he's like, I can bust out my rich knowledge of humans. Nope. And Liz is like, fuck you. What do you mean you're not going to touch my boobs? And he's like, what? I thought that was a foreplay word. And it's so great. The dumbest of all of Chekhov's guns. It is. is. It's a gun that just makes a fart noise. That's beautiful. That is so beautiful. Oh, man. Well, this this beautiful uh, fucking idyll that they're living in is challenged. I mean, the theme of these books is domesticity and impregnation. These are the two kinks holding these books together. Um, That and fuzzy consent. And um, they're found because people have been looking for Liz because they're like, you know, don't steal people. 
So now we get Ahako and Hayden. They get taken back to the main cavern, which the main cavern is swank as fuck. Like, it's real nice. This is after we get that lore dump, though, from the goodest boy, Ihako, um, finally fills some people in on the backstory. We have a very nice kind of sitting down by the campfire scene where Hayden, who is, well, would you look at this, another big stoic blue alien, <laughs> wanders off. <laughs> Rahash also goes off to hunt. Ihako turns to Liz and is like, you might not have noticed, but Rahash has got some shit going on. <gasps> Let me tell you about that shit. <laughs> And so we get, like, a discussion about, like, unique among the Sakui. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rahash has had some particularly bad models for consent. Like, was, you know, kidnapped as a kid, essentially, by his, his father, who wanted to impregnate his mother again. And it's, it's, a whole, yeah. it's a whole thing. They do make it back to the cave. And then shit kind of turns. Georgie takes Liz to see the healer, Malak, to make sure that she's all right. Georgie is like convinced Liz is secretly in this abusive relationship that she doesn't want to be in this relationship that she hates Rahush that she's afraid of him and Liz is pregnant and Rahush is being kept away from Liz while the aliens kind of sort this stuff out because they take this very seriously I shouldn't say aliens they're the native well they are not the indigenous people of this planet that is a thing that we find out later sort of that they are not but anyway uh, that was in the first book. That was part of the lore dump of the first oh, book. Oh, yeah, you're right. The they are not indigenous to the planet, but they are the people of this planet. And so Liz is pissed that they're keeping <laughs> Rush away. She wants her man. And Vectal is being leadery, and Georgie is really trying to back up her man. And is kind of willing to throw Liz and Rahush under the bus a little bit in order to do it. We're going to get more into the fact that Georgie is kind of shitty. Because <laughs> I know, I got feelings about it. The next day, Vectal announces that Rahush is going to be exiled from the tribe for his actions. And Liz and Rahush are separated. Liz goes absolutely berserk. They're not allowed to see each other anymore. Rahush is banned from the cave and the areas near it. They keep chasing him off. Liz is miserable and Georgie knows it. Everybody knows it and starts to stir the shit. And Georgie doesn't appreciate it, but... Georgie's not really helping her case. Um, I will give one example of a thing Liz does, which is Liz is like, oh, yeah, this is the warm season, which it is the warm season. They call it the bitter season there. And she's like, oh, it's not winter yet. That's the brutal season that's coming. And the girls in the cave are like, are you fucking kidding Uh. me? This is it. This isn't winter. This blows. And so Liz is like, I wonder what else they're not telling us. (laughs) <laughs> and then some other shitty stuff happens that Georgie's like, I can't believe you're being shitty about this, Liz. You talk about Georgie, who's you know, the de facto leader of the human survivors on this planet, being willing to throw Liz and Rayosh under the bus. She will talk to Liz's face like she is on her side mm. and like she's trying to plead their case and convince the Sakui chief Vectal that he needs to be lenient and give the couple time, give them space, let tempers cool. But in the meantime, Rehosh is barely exiled. He's barely been gone. And right away, Liz is surrounded by suitors, people yeah. who are there to give her gifts and basically be like, hey, you're ready to move in with me? Uh. And Liz is pretty upfront about, no, hell no. And Georgie's reaction to all this is, why are you being so difficult? <laughs> why? <laughs> you're going to give Vectal an aneurysm with this <laughs> attitude of yours. <laughs> Oh my god. You just gave away a courting present, and you hurt Vaz's feelings. 
Shorshi, I'm very angry with you. Yeah. Oh, God. But Liz, thankfully, Liz is a self-rescuing heroine? Question mark? (laughs) Question mark? (laughs) A self-scheming, a self-like cunning wench type. My Kindle at this point is full of notes just saying... Liz is the best. I <laughs> do like love I start him. to love Liz at this point in the book. So Liz is like, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I, I'm going to do something that'll get me exiled because they're not willing to exile a pregnant woman because they're like trying to make sure their species survives. So babies are important. But Liz like, well, fuck it. And so she takes a Hako hostage <laughs> And it's one of the best scenes ever. And Josh has a lot of feelings about this scene. I think as we all do, but I'm going to let Josh have all the feelings about it because damn, Mm -hmm. it's good. This is at a walk. My favorite scene in the book. Like I was driving out in the country um, when I listened to this scene and I literally like stopped for far too long at a light because I didn't have anybody behind me so I could like message Megan Bob about how much I love Ihako. Because he's so good. (sighs) Yeah. First of all, I think he's the first Sakui that has... A personality, (laughs) um, specifically a personality that is not some flavor of stoicism. Mm -hmm. This is so true. Like, he's affable and he's fun uh, and he's interesting in a way that Vectal was kind of, you know, stalwart and uh, Rahash is Rahash. But I think in in a very real way, it's the first time that we've gotten to to somebody in this novel who, like, knows how to handle Liz, Mm -hmm. who can put up with her bullshit. (laughs) Because she has these initial outbursts where she just sort of purges her bile. But, like, Ahako is is just like, okay, yeah, is that what you're sure? You're shouting a bunch? All right, and now let's actually talk. Unflappable. There is this time skip between Liz pulling Ahako's knife on him and Kira going to get Vectal so that they can discuss terms. And then it's just, like, this slam cut into the two of them are sitting there and I think, like, Ihako is asking Liz about kissing because they've just gotten bored and they've sat down and, you know, Liz is off for bullshit for a little <laughs> while and they're just talking like people. The thing that is so charming about this is he's been whittling this small figure and is like, well, how do I get Kira to love me? Or at least to give me time, how do I court her? And she's like, she looks at his whittling and the first thought that came to my mind was, oh, she's going to tell him to whittle his dick. And then she just just dead ass tells him, yeah, you should whittle your dick. <laughs> so Vectal finally is like, oh shit, I guess Liz is serious. She pulled a knife on somebody. That's a sign. And so he's like, okay, well, we have to work out a new punishment. Liz and Rahush are to be exiled together to the hunter's caves, which are the caves that are sort of out around the landscape for the next two and a half years or until Liz gives birth because the aliens carry pregnancies forever. So they have to do a ton of hunting and bring it all back to the main cave for the tribe and they don't get to live in the main cave with everyone until the punishment is complete and they're totally happy with that. And um, I think Josh had a point. This is a novel that, as we said at the top, centers two people who suck (laughs) and should not be inflicted upon anyone. (laughs) If anything, Vectal's judgment is a mercy upon the rest of the community. What was so interesting going back to this book after reading more than a human should of this series was just how Mm -hmm. that doesn't change how this is the second heroine that we meet in the series this is like a founding member of the series and every time she shows up in later books 
whoever is the narrator of that book is just going to be like, oh, fuck, it's Liz. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And then we get our final sex scene and it's doggy style with the whole spur in the butt thing because that's important and it's the theme of the book. (laughs) (laughs) Mike, okay. One last thing about Vectel's decision, though. And yes. Liz's plan. How the fuck did that work? How is that a plan that worked? Ihako is the reason that that worked. Ihako being like, you know what? No, let's see where this goes is the reason that it's this worked. It's true. And again, you make a very good point that Ihako is the goodest boy and frankly, the glue keeping this community together. But <laughs> how the fuck did, like, I was expecting her to have a real plan. Yeah. And this was a baby's plan. This was the plan a toddler has. (laughs) (laughs) It's a dumb dumb plan for babies. (laughs) Pulling a knife. (laughs) I do want to say, and I'm just going to throw it to you guys to see if we have final thoughts about why it is that these books are so damn hot. Have we explored and found the true meaning of why these are hot? Or are we still sort of just like the boner wants what it wants? Resonance decides. I keep coming back to this article that was written by uh, columnist Robert Brockway for Crack.com about 10 years ago. It was an article about a supernatural romance. And uh, what he wrote was about why vampire romance works, I think applies to this series as well i think there's something very sexy about not having control over a situation about just kind of Mm. having that taken away from you and having someone someone else just take charge of the damn thing Mm. there is a guilt aspect that goes along with that because you know that's not really something that's okay day to day Mm -hmm. like you know that that's not something that you want the world to look like even if it's something that is arousing to you what Brockway posits is that the reason that vampires work as romance fodder is that uh, you can get take that guilt away. It's okay to lose control around beings like this. They're supernatural. They're magic. Mm. They're stronger than you. Like, you don't have to feel guilty about losing control around these beings. And the Sakui are very large. You have resonance from the Kui amping up your emotions. For all the problematic aspects that get played with in this series, there is something safe about that Mm. and that this is a way to experience these horny feelings that might be dangerous to indulge in in real Mm -hmm. life but you know here uh, we can play with it uh, with less guilt really (laughs) yeah i think there's a big guilt alleviation with especially with the queer aspect bring up the desire to do something the thing that's inhibiting you from it which is you know multiple reasons of oh i shouldn't of the guilt and then the thing that allows us to remove that you know it's maybe just our super puritan like culture or Mm. because i know all right so story time with marissa when (laughs) i was a teenager and in the uber uh (laughs) oppressive southern baptist church in order to have sex fantasies i had to construct elaborate ideas inside my head to justify why this would happen outside of the bounds of matrimony. So, like, I was like, 
all right, we're trapped in like a biodome. And then like we <sighs> have to mate for reasons, even though we are not legally married. <sighs> and this is how I fantasize having sex with this person. I love That's it. That's beautiful. My personal go-to was just pretending like there was a marriage involved. Oh, that's that's beautiful. I should have imagined the wedding, but I really loved the the dirty, no, we're not supposed to be doing this feeling because, of course, and that's what this all ties into, right? We want that feeling of not only is it hot, but it's extra hot because we shouldn't. We hate each other, but there's only one bed. Like, it's that feeling. It's like the safest form of risk, I guess. Sure. Yeah. That's such a big attraction to this. But like kind of on a on a craft level, I think part of the reason that we are able to plug into this particular thing is a lot of like you said, this is somebody who is creating a thing that is so much for them. Mm. What Mm -hmm. you have been picking up and what I can see in this and what I see in my own work, the work that I am happiest is did I have fun creating this? Is this something that I I am passionate about? Is this weird in the ways that I'm interested in? And if the answer is yes, then that tends to be the stuff that I liked better. And seeing somebody ignite their own passion in that way, there's a loveliness inherent to that. Mm. And also there's a risk that you can be repulsed (laughs) by it. But if you're repulsed by it, this isn't for you. And that's fine. So now we come to the sights, sounds, and feels where we all get to have a moment and really celebrate a particular thing that is deeply, deeply important to us. All right, Josh, what did your elf eyes see? I think my elf eyes saw some dicks and not the ones that you think of. It's more (laughs) metaphoric than that. The wildlife on this planet, there's a lot of phallic imagery going on. We've got the quill beasts who are big and covered in them. We've got the sakots, the thing that they get the kui out of. It essentially is like, what if Baba Yaga's house was a ball sack? (laughs) Is at least what I got out of it. (laughs) Not wrong. And then like the face eaters with the big like bamboo noses Mm -hmm. sticking out. Low key in the background of this book, I think the thing that makes the Metlacks the most evil is that they're not phallic. They're in fact humanoid. Mind blown. You're not wrong though. You are not wrong. Marissa, what did your elf eyes see? You know, I knew this question was coming, and it's the one that I struggle with the mm-hmm. most. Because I don't think there's particularly strong imagery a lot in this book. Or maybe it's also an example of how I devour these books that is just... I don't eat it the way that you're supposed to, a fine, delicate thing that you, you know... Oh, no. I I do not sip the wine, swish it around in my mouth, and then comment that the grapes were good that year or uh, something. I just (laughs) swig the shit out of this tequila. And... um, But I think what strikes me, and this will come back with my feels as well, is the landscape. How Mm. it's, you know, so utterly desolate when it is described and you know there's a forest but not forest like you would expect and just the otherness and desolation Mm -hmm. of this physical space 
that I think is what really strikes me. David, what did your elf eyes see? My elf eyes saw the Kui parasite. Something you might not know about me is I have a nematode phobia. Uh, Hookworms, roundworms, any worm that doesn't have segments and is parasitic in nature really freaks me out. And uh, just the thought of this is what the whole book is centered around. This is what the series is centered around is these things that live inside you and make you feel things. (sighs) Shudder. Yeah. I saw that. I'm so glad it's only in the first two books, but like, So, Bob, what did your elf eye see? Rush's fucked up face and horn. (laughs) Oh my god. I love a, like, scarred up dude. Mm. Because he's Mm -hmm. been injured, then I can be like, oh, but you're still so beautiful to me. And, like, also, I want to touch your face and know, like, you've seen things, baby. You've seen things. And, like, his (laughs) fucked up horn, like... Ah, so yeah, that's me. That's me. <laughs> yeah, that was no joke. My second thing that I was thinking of, like his face and horn being jacked up like that. I mean, it's very like Bioware party member. Mm-hmm. Zaid is like my favorite. Mm. Uh, I was thinking Iron Bull. Yeah, I was thinking of Zaid. I was thinking Iron Bull. I was thinking of uh, Garrus. Yum, yum, yum. Yeah. All good flavors. All right, Josh, what did your Vulcaneers hear? I know I talked about it earlier, but really, like, there's nothing that I heard kind of more fully than that line, I'm going to make you come and then I'm going to take my time with you. It's so, like, that's such a meaty, tangible feeling for me. The desire to lavish somebody else with erotic care Mm -hmm. is one that I feel strongly. And to have that reciprocated to me is something that I want. Mm-hmm. Hearing that vocalized and in such a very concise and clear way was what my Vulcan ears heard. That's such a good line. It captures so much of that, like, a deeper kind of desire than the series always does. Like, the series is often very hot and very horny. It's not always very erotic. And that was more erotic. And so it's very nice to get that. Marissa, what did your Vulcan ears hear? Liz's smart-ass mouth. (laughs) Like, I know we've talked about how she is a trash person, but I actually, I have a real soft spot for Liz because she's funny and she is super snarky. In the very beginning of this book, I think an example of this is when she's first exploring what the, the Kui is. And she says, I don't even get a choice. This is like me saying, I want a cheeseburger and someone slapping a pickle into my hand and saying, fuck you, you get a pickle. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's an example of what I really love about her willingness to just be mouthy. And I find it amusing, even if it is highly annoying and terrible to all the other people around her. I, I, I'm here for I it. I will share with you, because you love Liz's smart mouth, a small tidbit from one of the very, very, very late books in the series. Liz mm-hmm. is holding her kits, and her eldest kit is a bit of a tattletale. And so Liz says something like, oh, that's some shit. And her little kid <laughs> says, mommy, you said a bad word. And Liz says, I sure as fuck did, honey. Finish your porridge. <laughs> <laughs> oh... Yes. I know. Yes. Oh, what a good line. It is. I know. That is some good parenting right there. I am I'm in awe. David, what did your Vulcaneers hear? 
I also heard Liz, so I'm just going to keep it short and tell you my favorite Liz line. Uh, commence mm-hmm. the shitting. I oh, thought that was real good. God. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, I, I feel the same way about Liz and her smart mouth. She has no filter. She is very in touch with her id. And there's something I really appreciate about that in book form. <laughs> She's very entertaining. Megan Bob, what did your Vulcaneers hear? It's from the angry wank scene. I hadn't expected him to catch me touching myself. Moaning his name, just double the humiliation. It had angered me, and I'd started to masturbate as a deliberate show of independence to show him (laughs) that he didn't own my body like he thought, that the cootie wasn't the boss of me. And, like, I was laying in bed reading this, and I started laughing hysterically to myself. Going like, that's right, Liz, you fucking independently masturbate. You show him how fucking self-sufficient you are. Liz is a fucking gift sometimes. Josh, Josh, what did your human heart feel? It was Ihako. Oh, God, it was Ihako. He's so good. He is. He's so good. He's just like, I want, just like, I'm going to read the next one just because I need some more of that good, good boy Ihako. He's so refreshing Mm -hmm. in the middle of all of this bleak and like there's all of this heavy stuff. And then there's just like that. There's just this one guy that's just like, oh, you pulled. Yeah, I suppose you do have that knife. Uh, Let's see where this goes. Sure. This is fine. (laughs) And it's just like he's so like he's so kind. Yeah. Um, And uh, just Ihako is. <laughs> he's just a nice boy. He is a nice boy. You're I think he's neat. Oh, I think he's neat too. Oh my god. This okay. is wonderful. All right, Marissa, what did your human heart feel? Well, speaking of bleak and heavy stuff, that that's what I felt. Uh <laughs> like it's funny because she Ruby Dixon almost seems to be really actively resisting this, but there's moments where it came through exactly how stranded and alone these girls are and mm-hmm. at the mercy of these aliens. And so though Georgie is the worst in many ways, I also really saw her position of being like, they could throw us out and we would die mm-hmm. in like half a day, all of us. They're alone. No one is coming to get them. And they are having to completely adapt to a hunter-gatherer society after having been in no way prepared for such a thing in their lives. And that's got to be, who can imagine exactly what that is like? It's a complete disruption of everything. And just the sheer desolation of that, as you feel, I think ties into the landscape and is is something that is totally inconsistent in the book but is still an undercurrent that every now and then pops up Mm. it's true it's definitely true these books are for all of their lightheartedness there is definitely an undercurrent of oh no (laughs) (laughs) all right david what did your human heart feel once again i i feel like i'm riding marissa's coattails i swear i wrote (laughs) these down ahead of time independently but uh yeah, the, the winter desolation was something I also got, and it's curious that for as little attention as she pays to that desolation, that that is something that we both felt about it. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's just the power yeah. of the feeling of cold. 
I have done winter camping. Uh, <gasps> I did that in my childhood uh, as part of scouting. Oh, sorry. I'm from the desert. I'm like horrified. I'm like, so you were subjected to child abuse is what you're saying. <laughs> winter camping. If you if you want to think of it that at the time. <laughs> so, but yeah, my feelings about it went in a little bit of a different direction uh, where yours seemed to go with the stranded women. Mine actually went more to rahosh uh just that i remember just how valuable a fire and food were just how important those mm. felt to my soul in those mm. moments and just knowing how lonely rahosh has felt that's kind of what family means to him that was the impression i got was that as valuable as fire food and shelter is to a freezing person that is the level of need he has for a family. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, that, that hit me. Mm. Megan, Bob, what did your human heart feel? I really love Liz and I want to make my defense of Liz, which is that for me, Liz is me on my very, very worst day, but all the time. And so to see somebody be their absolute shittiest, like the worst person all the time and have this person be loved anyway is like really affirming to go like, yes, even you shitty person. That's awesome. Are still lovable in some way. And granted, I'm not a Liz all the time, but on the days I am a Liz, it's nice to go, Aw, like, I, I'm not totally irredeemable. <laughs> oh. Well, that's about all we've got here on uh, the next wrestling fan, Under the Furs. But we can't go without doing the cheap pop quiz. A new group of Sakui show up in later books with unique features. Which of these is not one of the unique features we end up seeing? Is it A, cat-like features and claws? B, an extra long tail? C, extra tall horns? Or D, four arms? Do we think that Ruby Dixon is into cat boys? I feel like that's a pretty safe bet. I want to say extra arms, but I also think this is a romance novel and think of all of the good, good boning down opportunities an extra set of arms would provide. Four arms is four handies. Like this yeah. is a, this is. A... Yeah. I'm going to go with long horns personally. I'm going to split the difference and go with long tails. All right, David, do you already know the answer to this? I one? suspect I have hints. Okay. Okay, then um, I will say it is the one that we do not see is, in fact, the extra long tail. Everything else we get. So more girls arrive on the planet. How on earth do we get more girls on this planet? A, those jerk-ass little green men fuck up again. B, they're refugees fleeing Earth. C, someone from the tribe paid for them to be delivered. D, they were found in a long-buried pod beneath some of the ice. Boy, how much would it suck for one of the Sakui to just, like, pay for it? That would be <laughs> awful. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm marveling at that as a potential depth of shittiness. Mm. That's the most engaging one to me. Well, you're very lucky because yeah. it is. <laughs> That's the they one? They do that. Oh, yes. no. Wait, what? I thought it was that they were in the ice pod. 
No, somebody from the tribe paid for some of them to be delivered. That book's intense. I know, but uh, his redemption is very beautiful. It's still a good book. <laughs> it is still a good book. I still love it. You're telling me that there is redemption for sex trafficking? I, I, yes. You'd have I'm to a be a person. Okay. 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 Uh, what did he pay with? Um, that's what I, that's why pay? I thought it couldn't be that. What? Has he got like some furs? So just... another ship crashed earlier on and he got the money off of that ship and gave it to these other people. Oh, man. Capitalism is the worst. Wow, this this series. There's a lot of moving parts. Yeah, I can tell you why it's all okay in the end, but I, it'll really ruin a, a bombshell okay. for you later yeah. on. That, that's fine. Well, I guess I'll get there eventually. Yeah, same. I mean, I'm on book like 35, so. Jeez. <laughs> I know. Look, I've got a problem. I'm not. I'm not looking to solve it. I'm just saying I have one. No, no. <laughs> I, I'm saying, geez, because I've got catching up to do. <laughs> <laughs> so this is from the very latest book. Someone new is in the tribe. They have a deep, dark, supposedly shameful secret. What is their dark secret? Is it that they think they've only got the second biggest dick in the tribe? <laughs> <laughs> Well, now you can't skip it because that is the best answer. That's unrealistic, Josh. That's so unrealistic. (laughs) That's that's just not how the queen works. (laughs) A, they used to be a porn star. B, they used to be a stripper. C, they used to do sex work. D, they used to be a dominatrix. Isn't C in all the above? I don't know. I guess that's an interesting question about, like, terminology. It is all work that involves sex. So I guess, like, when you say used to do sex work, you mean, like, kind of full service. Yes. Would go out and be paid to have sex with people. Yes, exactly. A sex worker in the way that sex workers often use that term. I am going to say dominatrix because I think that she needs to have some fun with the whole compulsion aspect. And that sort of Mm. seems to be part of her thing. Yeah, yeah, I feel like that's the one that I would like it to be most. Mm-hmm. Uh, stripper is weak sauce. That's the thing that was the deep, dark secret. Then it would just be like, okay. Well, I think it's all kind of weak sauce, really, especially when you're on an alien planet yeah. that does not have the same conventions that we have put upon ourselves. But of those, I absolutely agree with you that stripper feels like the weakest sauce. I mean, her being a dominatrix, this provides a lot of exciting opportunities for the thing to go in. Right. That's a fun skill set to have. Yeah. She knows how to tie those rawhide strips, man. <laughs> mm. I can't give an answer better than that. All right. <laughs> this is the future I want. Oh, man. I, you all going to have to be real disappointed because it's she was a stripper and that's treated ah! as like ah. some horrible dark secret. And you know what's worse? The character is afraid to tell anyone else that she was a stripper because she thinks they're all going to think she's a terrible, horrible person. And then later on, she does tell everybody and everyone's like, oh, okay. And that's how it ends, basically. An appropriate response. I'm glad that we get justice at the end of all of these books, to be honest. (laughs) Actually, the response of, all right, it gives me hope again. So resonance must be fulfilled. We know this. So what happens if the couple is having trouble conceiving? Because pregnancy is when resonance stops. And so it'll just keep going if you're not pregnant. So what is the Sakui solution to not being able to get pregnant? 
A, the healer turns off the couple's resonance. B, they have to do a queectomy and replace it so resonance stops. C, the couple has to fuck in front of the healer to help the pregnancy. D, the couple has to imprint on an orphaned baby to stop resonance. I like the scene for C. I hope that that happens anyways. (laughs) Josh, you read my mind. I'm with you there. Based on some stuff that happens in other books, yeah, I think you might have to do a hard reset on that parasite. I think it's got to come out. God, that's a bummer. Yeah. Ooh, because you'd have a different resonance made. Yeah, you might do. That's rough. Y'all are in luck because it's you fuck in front of a healer to help the pregnancy. (laughs) (laughs) Damn. I want both of those things, though. I want both of those stories. (laughs) It is with a monstrosity a little bit who was created in a lab by mixing a bunch of different strong species together to make like a (laughs) super strong gladiator. So he has this really fucked up DNA. And so he can't get anybody pregnant, but like his mate loves him very much and is like, you're not a monster, even though you're covered in hair. And like, and his name is Gren, which I'm like, is it fucking short for Grendel? What right? the fuck? That's 110% Grendel. Yeah, I know. And like, but he's super hot and he loves her a lot. I've come so far yet. I've so far yet to travel. <laughs> I'm sorry I spoiled for you some of these books, oh, no, but no. I hope you'll you've still enjoy me, them. I think, On the I think contrary. You, I think you've relit the yeah. fire that I needed. Same, because I sort of trailed off on reading them, and now I must continue to follow this thread through the labyrinth. This shit goes wild. I gave you guys the gift of book horniness. (laughs) (laughs) This could not have a better ending. Oh my god. Thank you guys so much for coming. It's been a delight. Thank you for this recording in which we have dived into every nook and cranny that we had available. Just just really, really lapping at those crannies. <laughs> <laughs> With our ridged tongues. You better believe oh, it. Oh, man. Is there anything that you guys want to plug? Listen to Garden Plots with Skeletor, guys. If you are interested in my work, early project from earlier in this podcast is NXT D&D IMHO. Just They're so me making character sheets out of wrestlers. It's over on uh, AO3, an archive of our own. By the time you hear this, there might be dueling sheets between uh, David and I for Liz and perhaps Rahash. God, I hope so. But yeah, so that's my project of turning wrestlers that are covered on the show into 5th edition D&D characters and just spending just kind of fantastic amounts of time talking about why I made the decisions that I did because uh, (laughs) character generation for Dungeons and Dragons is something that I care very deeply about. Well, beautiful. Thank you guys so much for coming. I really appreciate it. And thank you for listening to this, this journey into the beating, throbbing heart of horniness. You've gazed upon it and now you are forever changed. I feel changed. Bye! The Next Wrestling Fan is produced by Miles Schneiderman with logo design by Claire Mulcairn. Special thanks to Rafael Medina for our theme song, Learn Buckle. You can follow his creative work on Twitter at EarthMofo. 
Also, thanks to Kevin McLeod for additional music and stingers, which are licensed under Creative Commons. Find his work at www.incompetech.com. We're on Twitter and Facebook as the NXT Wrestling Fan. Come talk to us. You can also follow Miles on Twitter at MJ Schneiderman and Megan Bob at Megan Bobness. Visit our website at nxtwrestlingfan.com for show notes, episode transcripts, and more. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, feel free to email us at nxtwrestlingfan at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. I might need to start watching NXT UK. That's encouraging. <sighs> yeah, Piper Niven is bae, and Piper Niven is also bisexual. And um, somebody made a joke about her, like about a competition eater, and then she just did like the pussy <laughs> side and said, better than you can, mate. <laughs> and I was like, fuck yeah, Piper Niven. And I'm in love, oh man, I just looked her up, yep. Yeah. Dude, she's I know. Hot. We're all having another a separate boner. We're <gasps> having a, a separate Ooh. and also intense boner. <laughs> uh, yeah. The boner within the boner. I know, bonerception. Um, I like that hostile. <laughs> Listen, sometimes you want to just keep going, and it just it at that point it, it like your your body's just like nah, nope, we got to take a break, my dude. Yeah, it's yeah. um, true. I know. I do feel like that is like the true the true tragedy. If feminism could just give men like limitless orgasms like women have I wish that was what we could do except we wouldn't do anything else I know but what a world we'd live in very damp sticky world